Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here at the 33rd NeurIPS in Vancouver, and I am with Ryan Rogers. Ryan is a senior software engineer in data science at LinkedIn. Ryan, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of the show. Awesome, awesome. I am glad to uh, glad to hear that and glad to have you here. You're pretty active in federated learning, uh, differential privacy. That's, in fact, what we're going to be talking about. You know, tell us about your background and how you got interested in those topics. In my grad school during my PhD, um, I was very interested in uh, sort of the fields of game theory with uh, computer science. And uh, I was working with Michael Kearns and Aaron Roth there. And I started learning more and more about differential privacy from uh, Aaron Roth. He wrote the textbook on it. And so he was a great teacher and we started working a lot on, on the topic. And then toward the end of my PhD, like the last year, uh, Apple announced that they were doing differential privacy in uh, iOS 10. So that was like really exciting to see that like, wow, uh, the research that I'm, I'm doing can be actually useful to, uh, to companies that are interested in privacy. So uh, it seemed like a logical next step to just uh, after my PhD to go immediately to Apple and uh, kind of continue the, some of the research that I had done uh, during my PhD, but now at Apple. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there kind of worked on uh, what's called the local model of uh, differential privacy, where... Uh, any records that are submitted are privatized on device prior to being sent uh, to Apple in that case. So use cases like, you know, finding popular emojis that people are typing, popular new words that people are typing on their keyboard, uh, things like that. Uh, And then toward the end of my uh, uh, time at Apple, I started exploring more uh, private federated learning, uh, local differential privacy in that case, uh, machine learning tasks. Uh, and then I started learning about more and more about some of the work that's happening at, at, at LinkedIn with differential privacy. And it was really exciting to me that it was like kind of a different model of differential privacy that was going on there. Uh, something that's called the central model of mm-hmm. differential privacy, where data is collected and uh, things that we want to do with the data set is privatized. Uh, so rather than in the local model, which can be restrictive in some settings, uh, the global model can kind of open up a whole uh, new class of problems that you can do. Uh, so that was really exciting to me. So uh, after about two years at Apple, I then uh, moved to LinkedIn, and that's where I am now, working mm-hmm. on differential privacy there. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, we first started covering differential privacy on the podcast maybe a couple of years ago with a series of uh, shows, which included Aaron. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... So much has happened since then, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like the, the census is now right. using differential privacy. So many more organizations are talking about how they're incorporating it into kind of the way they do business, whereas before differential privacy and in particular differentially private machine learning was – oh, and also it's there's a – uh, TensorFlow library now. Yeah, a lot of um, open source projects. A lot now. of open source stuff. Exciting time to be in the field. Yeah, yeah. So in like 2016, when Apple announced they were doing differential privacy, that like spiked interest in the in the area. And mm-hmm. now, like Census Bureau announcing that they're doing differential privacy is like even more recognition uh, into the area. So it's really important to get like practical things to 
to be differentially private and for more people to get engaged with the topic. Yeah, yeah. So you have a spotlight talk here at the conference on a paper that you contributed to Practical Differentially Private Top K Selection with Pay What You Get Composition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I feel uh, like long we could title, spend the, the interview like just dissecting what all those words mean in this context. Right, yeah. Hey, what's the best way to go through that? Uh, so yeah, this was a really, really fun project with my colleague at LinkedIn, uh, David Durfee. Uh, so when we first started working on uh, a project at LinkedIn, uh, we wanted to kind of use some off-the-shelf techniques from differential privacy. It's been an active research uh, field for close to 15 years. So we were kind of handling a very basic task, like what are the top 10 articles that members are engaging with across LinkedIn? Uh, and so for that type of query, we were, we were just like, okay, well, we can take existing uh, algorithms and uh, use that and it'll be differentially private. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, these existing techniques require you to uh, have extra information about what you're searching for. For instance, if I want to know top 10 articles that are being engaged with among all data scientists in the Bay Area, I would need to also provide all the possible articles that are actually out there, hmm. which is kind of contradictory to how a data scientist would actually want to run that query. Uh, you would want to ask the data set, hey, what are the top 10 articles? Because I don't know what the articles are. As opposed to which of these millions yeah, it, of articles. Exactly. So my algorithm would have to know all the possible articles that are out there, which could be millions. Maybe right. I don't even know about it, about all the possible and articles. Is the, you know, you would presume that those articles are in the, in the data set. Is the requirement to know all of those in the data set, is that the issue there that it breaks the privacy aspect of it itself? Exactly. So like even uh, articles that nobody clicked on uh, in differential privacy, you would have to think of this hypothetical world, this hypoth hypothetical data set where one new member might be added to the data set, which might actually click on these, these uh, uh, other articles mm -hmm. that didn't exist in the real data set that you're running things in. So only in the analysis to prove that it's actually differentially private do you have to consider like all possible articles that can uh, show up. Okay. So uh, that seemed contradictory to like how data scientists wanted to work with it. So we were like, okay, there's got to be a better way of doing this. More of like a black box approach. Mm. Ask top 10 articles, top 10 skill sets among these uh, users, uh, something like that you wouldn't have to feed it also like here are all the articles that you should search Got for it. here are yeah. all the skill sets to look for so we're talking about an approach the essence of this is that the you know differential privacy uh, at its core is providing a theoretical guarantee of privacy but all the theory in these theoretical guarantees was based on this having every the knowledge of everything exactly and in practice that's impractical exactly got it yeah so whenever you uh, would like to run these things like you just want the data set to tell you these sort of things sort of like right. exploratory uh, data analytics mm -hmm. so before like yeah you would have to give exactly those things uh, uh, beforehand but then with these new algorithms uh, you can just ask uh, top ten articles top ten countries top ten uh, skill sets and not have to provide, oh, here are all the articles, here are all the mm -hmm. countries, here are all the 
skill sets that you need. Uh, and, and furthermore, still have your differential privacy guarantees. Yes. It's not that you couldn't ask your database, you know, select top 10 from whatever. It's yeah. that you can still get your differential yeah, privacy so guarantees. Yeah, so subject to differential privacy yeah. is always the, the constraint with yeah. these, these issues. Yeah, so uh, the practical aspect of these uh, algorithms are that uh, you don't have to feed it the, um, the what we call the domain uh, of the data set into mm -hmm. these algorithms, and uh, they could work uh, on top of existing infrastructure. Say that you already have built at your company some uh, very efficient uh, top K solver, uh, but you didn't. We weren't considering differential privacy to begin with, right? So you're taking this highly distributed data set that's located in lots of different uh, areas, and you built this uh, system that can run queries incredibly fast. So now, when you want to introduce differential privacy, you don't want to just totally bypass this existing infrastructure. Right. You want to be able to leverage that still with all of your queries. So that's where we wanted to apply our differential privacy algorithm sort of as a layer on top of this existing infrastructure. So we wouldn't slow things down. Uh, you could still get the efficiency that you asked for while still getting uh, privacy guarantees. So that's why what was so appealing about these algorithms, like the mathematics behind it is incredibly difficult, uh, but the algorithms themselves are, are fairly straightforward. So uh, in essence, like you would ask a top K uh, problem and rather than asking top K from the original existing system, you would ask like maybe top 2K, maybe a little bit more, fetch a, a little bit more data, mm -hmm. get those results, and then add noise to those results and only uh, release uh, K, at most K results mm -hmm. from that. And so that's essentially the, the algorithms that we propose, but proving that it's differentially private is a lot more difficult. It's surprising that your multiplier just needs to be two or on that order. Yeah, so uh, that's kind of a parameter that um, you can tune. So depending mm -hmm. on like how, how much slower can your computation be while still being usable. So mm -hmm. ideally, you would just go to this existing infrastructure and say, give me all the data. Mm -hmm. But uh, that might not be practical in some sense because we think of the problem as, you know, privacy is a constraint to the uh, problem, but also runtime also mm -hmm. data storage. So we want to keep, be mindful of all those things in terms of a practical system. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you can run things, if things can take a little bit longer, go and fetch as much data as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. But if you can't, then maybe just a factor of two is enough. But mm -hmm. utility will improve if you fetch more mm -hmm. results. Mm -hmm. And so then uh, the, the paper is primarily establishing this, the, this kind of the relationship between the number that you're requesting and this multiplier and your ability to still guarantee differential privacy? Yeah, so uh, there are kind of two components to the, the paper. First is, uh, here are some algorithms that uh, we consider very practical, that you can put a layer on top of existing systems and get differential privacy. Mm -hmm. uh, it might slow things down a little bit because we have that extra parameter of fetching more data if you need. Uh, the other aspect of it is we also provide uh, a way to sort of budget how much privacy uh, you're allowing if somebody can interact with the system multiple times. So if I ask like a top K query, followed by another query, followed by another query, you're gaining more and more information about the data set. And so you want to sort of track how many accesses somebody has made about your data set while still preserving some privacy. Mm. So is that second part specific to the top K framing of this problem? It, it's, 
one of the things I recall from previous conversations is that a, a, a big part of, you know, doing this in practice is like trying to figure out what this epsilon yeah. needs to be. Exactly. And, you know, so it's always a problem. It's not just yeah. in this top K sense. Yeah. So uh, the privacy. And it's impacted by the multiple dips at the. Exactly. The so this privacy thing. loss parameter, this epsilon, that's something that uh, we need to track as yeah. we're interacting with it. So differential privacy, one of the great features about it is what's called composition. So that. If I run one differentially private uh, query followed by another one, uh, it's still differentially private, mm -hmm. although with slightly worse parameters because I've gained more information about mm -hmm. it. So you can sort of budget for if I am comfortable with this much privacy loss over my entire interaction with the system, then I'm just going to track how many interactions they make and just uh, shut off access after a certain amount of time. Huh. Uh, but what's uh, the new contribution of this work is what we call pay what you get composition, okay. which uh, our algorithms, you can think of it as like maybe a deficiency of them is if you ask for top uh, 100 results, it might return only 20 results. And the reason why is because there might be lots of ties in your results so that it doesn't know how to rank them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so rather than releasing uh, a full 100 results, it might return only 20. And so typically with differential privacy, your uh, privacy budget would have to deplete by the number of things that you requested, not how many things you actually got. Mm. So if I ask for 100 things, my privacy uh, budget would deplete by 100, uh, even if I got only 20 results. Mm -hmm. So we provide a new uh, composition uh, technique that allows you to only pay for the number of results that you get so that if I have a total budget of maybe uh, 100 accesses, I can ask like a top 100, and then if I only get 50 results, now my budget only dropped by 50, mm -hmm. I can ask another query. Uh, and maybe I only get like 25 results. And so I can keep asking until a full 100 is exhausted. Whereas before, if I asked for a top 100 and only 10 were returned, I would be done with my uh, interaction. Are there constraints imposed on the way the presented results of a tie are uh, selected? Yeah, so the, the ties uh, are are an issue for the um, for the algorithm because we have to introduce a threshold as well, uh, mm -hmm. which kind of intuitively for privacy constraints, not not even thinking about differential privacy, but privacy in general, if counts are sort of uh, below some value, uh, you would think of those as being really sensitive. Maybe mm -hmm. only, only a few people actually use that or viewed that article or typed yeah. that URL. Uh, so we inject some threshold, and it might be the case that there's like several uh, articles uh, that are actually at or below that threshold value. And so if that's the case, then if there's sort of lots of small counts, we're only going to release uh, fewer results. Okay, okay. Um, you mentioned that the first part of the paper is presenting several algorithms. How are the different algorithms differentiated? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the uh, um, the privacy guarantees that we can give with these algorithms are uh, what's called user level. And so this is in distinction with uh, some of other practical works of uh, what's called event level differential privacy. And so if you think about it, event level differential privacy is a lot, um, uh, maybe an easier uh, constraint to the problem because it's protecting the privacy of any one action a user makes, maybe like one click or one page view. Uh, but with user level uh, privacy, what you want to do is you want to protect all actions that a user could possibly make over the entire thing. So if a and user is actually engaging with multiple articles, 
then you want to protect the privacy of all of those articles that that uh, user viewed. So, so then because we're after a user level uh, privacy guarantee, uh, what that means is that we have to sort of uh, know in advance whether a user can uh, impact counts in lots of different places. Maybe they can view every possible article that's uh, ever uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, and in that case, we call that unrestricted. Um, so we don't know in advance how many things they can touch. And so we have a particular algorithm that will give you user level privacy. But for something like top 10 countries that have a particular skill set, you know in advance that any one user could only be in one country. So uh, a user, if you take that user out of the data set or add them, you know only a single count can change. Mm -hmm. And so the, the algorithm that we have in that case is slightly different. And so in either case, we're ensuring a user level privacy guarantee, mm -hmm. but that's sort of the distinction to, to ensure user level privacy. We need to know in advance, either how many things they can possibly touch, how many counts they can change. And if you don't know how many things they can change, then you're going to use a sort of default algorithm, which is, well, they could change everything. So this is the algorithm that you should run. Mm -hmm. So practically speaking, who are the users in these, in this scenario, is this, Sam as the user using the, the LinkedIn app, you know, web or mobile, I, where I don't tend to see counts or something like that? Or is this like an internal LinkedIn user uh, who has access to do, you know, reporting on articles and things like that, but you still want to protect the privacy of the, the user base? Right. So the, um, the existing like differential privacy system at, at LinkedIn uh, sort of handles um, data analytics or reporting uh, for users so that we can provide like uh, ad analytics, content analytics, uh, profile view statistics, uh, that sort of thing. So it's sort of uh, we're, we're providing products uh, for people to get sort of reporting information. And because of that, we want to be mindful of uh, the members' privacy, uh, mm -hmm. their, their data. So we might call them like private actions that users are doing, things that they don't want to like deliberately share mm -hmm. uh, with people outside. Uh, unlike, you know, a share of an article or a like or a comment. Uh, and so, so these aren't things that I might, you know, be exposed, controls that might be, in, you know, surfaced via the feed, but more like the, you know, the business tools, ad interfaces, things like that. Exactly, where, yeah. You know, there's more of a risk that I might run some report and uh, you're trying to, to make sure that I'm, I'm not able to get to, individually identifiable. Exactly. I want to provide only aggregate uh, statistics about yeah. how people are interacting across uh, LinkedIn, uh, but still maintain privacy. Um, even in the aggregate statistics, there's been uh, studies showing like even with aggregates, you can get uh, individual level uh, uh, information. So right. that's kind of why differential privacy uh, uh, is so great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the, the, the different types of algorithms that you, you mentioned in the first part of the paper, is it both the event-based and the user-based for this kind of problem? Or it, were you saying the event-based is already solved and you're doing different flavors of user-based? Yeah, so uh, what we're going after is user-level okay. uh, privacy. And so uh, because of that, we have to be mindful of how many things one user can change. If we're going for event-level, we know that only a, uh, a single click can only change a single count. Right. So in that setting, like we also provide an algorithm for that case. Mm -hmm. So even though we're after user level privacy guarantees, uh, we have an algorithm that would also give you uh, event level, which is also new. 
it, does this paper describe something that you've uh, been able to put into production at LinkedIn or is it more kind of ongoing research that uh, is, you know, driving towards something that's usable for you? Yeah, so with the existing uh, differential privacy system uh, that's providing noise on aggregate statistics and providing event level privacy, uh, and so with these uh, extra tools, extra algorithms, we wanted to sort of incorporate that into our existing suite of tools mm -hmm. so that uh, we can also provide uh, differentially private results for exploratory data analytics, uh, kind of like the top K, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we could provide user level privacy guarantees. So this is sort of ongoing work that we're doing in the uh, differential privacy efforts at LinkedIn is uh, um, we're, we're pushing forward. You mentioned the kind of the compositionality of uh, composability. I forget which word you use. Yeah, <laughs> one of those. Composition, composability. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, elements of differential privacy. Um, does the the user level uh, controls of those like sit on top of the event based controls, or are they a totally separate you know system or approach to this? Yeah. So with the with the uh, composition. Um, we have to think of not just algorithms uh, that are providing uh, mm -hmm. differential privacy, but we also have to have sort of a tracking uh, of like how many accesses are they are they making with my system, and then deducting things based on whatever queries uh, they're asking. So you can kind of think of these as like kind of two components. Like there's sort of the uh, uh, algorithm side of things, and then there's also the budget tracking. Mm -hmm. uh, so that these together can provide a very global uh, differential privacy system. You also are active in kind of the federated learning and the, the use of differential privacy and federated systems. Has LinkedIn published anything in that area? No. So that was my, uh, my prior work at, at okay. Apple. Yeah. Yeah. So um, with that, we uh, were very interested in, in federated learning because like there's lots of iPhones that are out there. Uh, it'd be great if uh, we could just push uh, training on device uh, because there's lots of sophisticated hardware on the iPhone. So, like, why don't you just push all the um, intensive work to the peripheral devices? Mm -hmm. What's great about it is that you're not submitting uh, data back, but you're sending, uh, like, the weights of your neural net that you were training on device, yeah. which those themselves are computed on the data so they contain information about what data they were computed on. Uh, and so the work that I did there, we worked on uh, sort of local privatization of those model weights prior to uh, submission so that on the server we can aggregate them and update the model uh, with only these uh, privatized weights and uh, iterate on that process. And it's actually uh, some of the work that I, that I did was actually featured in the uh, expo at Oh Just God, on I guess Sunday. Monday or Sunday. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is why you're able to tell us about exactly. It yeah, so Apple uh, just talked about it. Yeah, yeah. So they uh, they presented some of the work at WWDC this year, and okay. they then talked about the private federated learning system. Uh, some of the use cases I think were like with Hey Siri mm -hmm. uh, and, and some other ones too. So mm -hmm. yeah, really cool work. Yeah, yeah. Where where do you see some of the the big kind of you know frontiers uh, for differential privacy, you know, at LinkedIn and beyond in the industry, you know, given the progress that's been made over the last few years? 
Yeah, so I, I think um, within differential privacy, you can kind of break it up as local and central. Yep. And then within those two models, you can break up the tasks as data analytics and machine learning. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, with all of those, like I think we need to uh, still push for practical deployments of uh, all and of all these. And all the stuff we talked about previously is data analytics. We're not talking about differential private machine learning. Yeah, yet. so in the central model, I was only talking about uh, uh, data analytics. With the federated learning and the local model, that's more machine that learning. More machine learning. Uh, yeah. With the emojis one, that's more data analytics in the local model. Yep. Uh, so really, like the book is not closed on any of these things. Yeah. Like We need to keep pushing in, in, in these areas. And some of the great work that's going on in the open sourcing of these projects, uh, I think, is a great step forward because it will bring more people to the uh, forefront of this field and really push the frontiers of it. Uh, because I think it is the future of uh, how we think about data use. We need to be mindful of you know, what algorithms we're picking, how we can track uh, how users' data is following. Uh, and so uh, some of the uh, open source efforts, like there's the uh, work from uh, Microsoft uh, collaborating with Harvard, uh, try pushing this uh, differential privacy open source platform. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, we're actively collaborating with, with that team because LinkedIn is a, uh, uh, within Microsoft now. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's and a is that project. focused on centralized, central or? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so I, I believe like it wants to cover like all of uh, potential use cases, but mm -hmm. uh, uh, initially it'll be central model uh, working on top of uh, data stores. A bit hesitant to, to try to poke at the details because it's difficult to poke at, you know, the details of kind of a theoretical paper. But, you know, I, I'm wondering if you can kind of give us a sense for you know, what was the hard part here mm -hmm. and, and, you know, where you started and, and, you know, what that, what the effort was like. Yeah. So, um, some of the difficulties with it were, um, uh, there, there's like sort of standard differential privacy, uh, algorithms like adding Laplace noise, uh, is a very standard differential privacy algorithm. And then there's something called the exponential mechanism, which, you typically don't think of adding noise. You kind of think of uh, random sampling things instead. And so one of the really nice connections that we made in our paper was that actually exponential mechanism can be implemented by adding uh, something called gumbel noise uh, rather mm -hmm. than like Laplace noise. So, um, and gumbel noise actually pops up a lot in machine learning. It's uh, um, something that you would do to um, report like the um, a category that uh, has the highest weight. So typically how you would think about doing this is you would have weights for different, like, you know, dog, cat, um, uh, orange, whatever, uh, for a particular image classification task. And so you would have weights. They would all be positive, but they wouldn't be like a probability distribution. They wouldn't all add up to one. Mm -hmm. So what you would do is you'd do a softmax layer where you would take all those weights, take uh, e to the weight, and divide by the sum of the exponentials of the weights. Now you have a probability distribution, and you would sample according to that probability distribution to get like the this is the uh, label for that particular um, task. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, tip, you don't typically do this in practice. What you do is you stop at the weights and you add gumbel noise to all of those weights and report the um, category that had the highest noisy value. Uh, and this is called the gumbel max noise trick. Okay. Uh, and so it turned out that uh, we could use that with um, the exponential mechanism to get a differentially private algorithm. Now, one of the limitations of it is because it's differential privacy, uh, gumbel noise itself, you cannot release the counts. 
and satisfy the differential privacy uh, condition, you can only release the element that was the, the max. So you, you don't you don't know like why it was the max. Like the, it was the max because you know the value was forty five or something. You only know that this was the most popular one. This one was the one with the highest weight. Mm -hmm. uh, and so with that connection of exponential mechanism uh, with gumbel noise, we were able to take existing uh, algorithms uh, like typically how you would solve top k. You would use the exponential mechanism k different times. Uh, you could now do this in like one shot by just adding gumbel noise to everything and reporting the K uh, values that are in the, the top. Uh, and so that connection made, made things a little bit easier in our analysis. We analyzed things in, according to the exponential mechanism, uh, but we were using gumbel noise in the actual uh, implementation, which made it a lot more efficient and mm -hmm. practical, <laughs> hence the name and the, t and the title. And so does the... The use of, of gumbel noise and kind of a noise-oriented approach as opposed to the exponential approach, did that allow the differential privacy guarantees to, were you say, able, able to kind of use the existing noise-based privacy guarantees, but with a different di distribution? Yeah, to them? yeah. So what the connection of like noise with exponential mechanism was really helpful because uh, it, we wanted to incorporate a threshold. We wanted to say like, okay, if counts were too small, we didn't want to report them. Mm -hmm. uh, so we wanted to incorporate a threshold, but incorporating a threshold when you're randomly sampling things, like we didn't know where a, a threshold could be implemented. Mm -hmm. But now when you're talking about adding random noise to values, like now it makes sense to add a threshold to those things so that you would only report things that were above some threshold value. Mm -hmm. Whereas with exponential mechanism, if you were just to look at it, you wouldn't know where to necessarily say like, oh, a threshold really needs to be this value. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Any, any other kind of interesting things we should be kind of looking forward to coming out of the differential privacy community? Yeah. So I'm really excited about, you know, the open source efforts uh, in the area. Uh, I think um, this is kind of the future of uh, private data analytics. Uh, it's really important to be transparent with how you're doing things. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, if you're just touting that you're private uh, and you're not revealing what, what it is, then is it really private? How do people verify these certain things? So transparency is really important. Mm -hmm. uh, and this will bring more people uh, to the community. So that's really got to be uh, the movement forward. I think there's going to be, there's great open problems in uh, central uh, DP with data analytics, uh, with the machine learning, there's lots of open problems. I think that still needs to have a lot of uh, consideration from people in industry uh, to make them practical rather than uh, trying to go after just pure theory, try to make things actually work in practice and at scale. Yeah. Uh, and in the local model, uh, I think there's lots of work to do uh, as well there. There's also very interesting work sort of in between the two. Uh, taking sort of uh, a little bit of local with a little bit of central to get like a hybrid model. Uh, so I think that's an incredibly interesting uh, push forward to think of like di various models of privacy. And it sounds like a, it would be a lot harder in that case to kind of provide these, you know, general privacy guarantees. Yeah. So there's even in the, the local model, like the guarantees are local as yes. opposed to, you know, local relative to some distrib some centralized thing. Yeah. So I think for that, you kind of take a step back and you're like, well, where's the privacy of my system? Because maybe the privacy parameter is the same in all of these things, but mm -hmm. one just feels more private than the other. Yeah. And it's because you're sort of shifting this trust barrier. 
uh, in the local model, like the trust is like on your device. Like, yeah. uh, I know that I'm privatizing it before I'm sending it. In the central model, the trust boundary is not at um, data submission, but more at wherever I want to build an application. That's where my privacy uh, trust uh, barrier is going to be. Mm -hmm. And the model in between, there's like, well, maybe there's some things internal to my company that I want to protect the, uh, you know, malicious internal employees from accessing these uh, data sets. Uh, so I want to add, introduce some noise at that level, uh, but maybe not as much as what I would be comfortable with as if I want to just publicize this model and have uh, deploy this on all um, devices out there. So it's sort of the trust boundary, like you can sort of think of various models of privacy, uh, whereas the, the privacy parameter might be the same in, in all of them, you're, you're shifting the trust. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to share with us you know, a little bit about what you're up to. Absolutely, appreciate thanks, for, really appreciate you having me. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.